3: Longest Shortest Time is brought to you by Invitae. Your genes can tell you if you're 12% French or 6% Italian. They can also tell you a lot about your future health. When you take an Invitae genetic test, they search for meaningful health information, like whether you're at an increased risk for inherited cancer or heart disease. Based on your results, you may be able to take steps to potentially lower that risk. Learn more by visiting Invitae.com. That's I N V I T A E.com.
4: Hey, everybody, a couple quick things before we get started. First off, welcome to all of our new listeners who found us through This American Life. This week and next week, we're rebroadcasting a couple of our most popular episodes ever. It's kind of a two-parter, so you should tune into both. Then on April 13th, we're coming back with a whole season of new episodes. Lots of great stuff coming. We'll be doing another round of Kids Asking a Comedian Unanswerable Questions. The comedian will be Lauren Lapkus this time. We'll also be talking to a clown yeah, that's complete with fart noises and and squeaky noises and uh, a ping pong ball that somehow gets thrown at me. And here's the big one. We are very excited to be having Terry Gross on the show. Yeah, the public radio icon, Terry Gross. She will be talking about her decision to not have children. And uh, she'll also confess her recurring nightmare to me. You do not wanna miss this. Make sure you are subscribed to the longest, shortest time in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, tickets are going fast for our Speed Dating for Mom Friends event in Chicago. Steve and Kate's camp is gonna be giving away three free days of camp to everyone who comes. This is happening April 9th at the Grafton in Lincoln Square. Get your tickets now at LongestShortestTime.com under events. Okay, on with the episode. Tristan was 27. He'd been single for four years. He was living in Los Angeles, heading to brunch at his friend's house, and he spotted this guy crossing the street.
2: He had like kind of pink hair and a nose ring, and he had like these tall boots and like tight pants and a little black bandana. And I don't know, he just took my breath away. This pink-haired guy. It was pretty clear
4: he was going to the same party as Tristan. They started talking. His name was John.
2: I was so, you know, I could, I could like barely talk to him. He was so beautiful. I really tried. I was like giving him all I had, you know, flirting wise. Um, and I was getting nothing back, like nothing. And I was like, what? What am I doing wrong? You know? And at one point, I went up to go went to the bathroom to wash my hands. I looked in the mirror and I realized that I actually had a piece of spinach covering up one of my teeth. <laughs> like the biggest cliche. Oh my God. He <laughs> thought I had like a dead tooth. You know what I mean? And you know, when someone's when something's going on with someone's teeth, it's really hard to like listen or pay attention to them. <laughs> so in retrospect, he said, oh yeah, I thought you were super cute, but I was like too bad about his tooth. Oh. <laughs>
4: Tristan was not thrown by John's disinterest. He was like, I don't care. This is my person. He friended John on Facebook. He started going to events where he knew John would be.
2: He joined a queer meetup group that John led. And he actually had a boyfriend at the time, too, which I didn't know until later. And so I just said, I'm going to wait. So I waited. And I knew that the day that he got out of that relationship, I was moving in for the kill. (laughs) Now, if you've ever been the
4: Tristan in this scenario, obsessing over someone, following them around, pining, waiting for them to get out of a relationship, and this person is not very responsive to your flirting in the first place, you know the chances of this working out are slim. In your typical love story, this ends in heartbreak for Tristan. But this is not your typical love story.
2: His Facebook status, like his relationship status on Facebook changed, you know, it was like, John Chaplow is single. I literally picked up the phone and I said, what are you doing tonight? Do you want to have dinner with me? And he said, yeah.
4: This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank. Today, we've got the story of two guys who are faced with the possibility of becoming dads overnight at the least likely time in their lives. So something worth mentioning here before we dig in, and this is something Tristan wrote to me in his email about his story. Tristan is transgender. He was born a girl and lived as a girl until he was about 20. That's when he changed his name and asked his friends to refer to him as he. At that point, Tristan also wanted to transition physically, you know, to get hormonal treatments. But he was working as a Broadway singer, so he
2: worried about it um because your voice changes a lot you know it's like it's like double puberty you know
4: Tristan decided to enroll in a performing arts conservatory so he'd have teachers who could help him learn how to work with his new voice
2: Yeah so I went into this conservatory looking like a lesbian quite frankly because I had short hair you know um and I was really boyish and then I literally came out with a goatee and looking totally like any other 20 year old guy <laughs>
4: Tristan's only ever gotten hormones, not surgery. So his body is female. These are his words. But to the outside world, he presents as male. We'll come back to this. For now, you just need to know that John, the pink-haired guy, was not at all aware that Tristan was into him, despite Tristan having been a little stalkery. But after that first dinner, when John's Facebook status had switched to single, John started to like Tristan back, too. So you started dating and, like,
2: what what did you guys do for fun? Oh, man. You know, like 25-year-old gay boy things. We, like, we went to shows, you know. You know, we would do a weekend in Vegas and stay out all night dancing and driving to see our friends in San Diego, going to the beach, making out in the sand. It was magical.
4: Tristan and John lived like this for a year, Labor Day weekend, 2011, they were partying up a storm in Vegas.
2: The next Friday,
4: John's phone rang.
2: We got a phone call um, saying that his sister's kids were going to be taken away from her, that um, the situation in their house had gotten so bad for the kids that social services was going to step in and the kids were going to end up in foster care. Um, and we were led to believe that you know, his sister would not be able to successfully jump through the hoops that she would need to to get the kids back.
4: And how old were the kids at the time? One and three. So that was Friday. The social worker told John that this plan to remove the kids from the home, this was going to go down on Monday. Unless, of course, he took them.
2: And it was, I was literally like at work and my partner called me and it's, it was so cheesy. He was like, are you sitting down? You know, like in a movie or something? <laughs> <laughs> um and I was like, well, sure, yeah, what's going on? And he said, we have to drive to Bakersfield and we have to convince to let us take our kids. And you said? I, well, I said, yes, of course, of course. Immediately you said that? Immediately, of course. Um, you know, I'm like wildly, I'm like a wildly romantic person. I'm like, this is going to be amazing. We're going to save these two kids. And And on the drive up there, he said, I want you to know that you know, we've been together for a year and this, like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know if we're taking them for the weekend. I don't know if we're taking them for a month. I don't know if they're going to go back to this really dangerous home. I don't know if we're keeping them forever, but I want you to know that this is not something we do halfway. This is not something that we do or doing for fun. We've never talked about forever. You know, we're not really forever kind of people.
4: When Tristan says they weren't forever kind of people, he means that as queer people, they saw themselves as skeptics of traditional romantic narratives.
2: But this is more important than getting married. We pick up these kids. If they stay with us, you are agreeing to be with me for the next 18 years. We're not going to take them from an unstable situation and put them in another unstable situation.
4: This was, this was in the car ride on the way to get the kids. Yep. <laughs> another thing
2: that made Tristan say yes to the kids
4: He had a foster sister in his family, and she'd had a horrendous time in the system. He did not want to watch that happen to John's niece and nephew. So Tristan said yes, 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 to all of it. The kids, the forever, he was game, even more confidently than John was. But it was scary. They didn't get paid much, and they were just
2: in their mid-20s. And, you know, in gay years, that's like 15 you know that's <laughs> you're not in your mid 20s when you're gay and 27. Um explain but, that. Oh, uh you know there's like there's just a bit of a usually there's a bit of a developmental sort of delay. Um a lot of the things that like sort of straight people go through when they're 10, 12, 15 As a gay person, you don't really go through until you're in your 20s. You don't get to date a bunch. You don't get to make a bunch of stupid mistakes and stay out late. You know, so there's always that delay um, romantically uh, in terms of your relationships. Um, And so, I mean, I've never met another LGBT person who's a parent at age 25.
4: Tristan and John drive two hours to John's sister's. They go in. They convince the sister to let them take the kids. Just for a few days, they tell her, so she can get back on her feet. Tristan says she seemed relieved.
2: And then over time, as their home life really, really deteriorated, and as there was, you know, more police incidents at that that home, we eventually had to go behind their back and file for emergency guardianship through the court systems. It was incredibly difficult you know, there was an investigation. We had to, you know, prove to all these investigators that we were a good and loving home, which felt very scary for us as a gay couple. What what state are you in? Uh, That we were in California and we were in LA. And we had talked to a, a lawyer in Bakersfield, which is where they were. And the lawyer in Bakersfield said, there is absolutely no way that a judge in this county will ever agree to have you parent these kids. They would rather they live in a meth home with straight parents who are abusive than live in a happy, healthy, stable, supportive gay house. And that, that was part of our calculus in deciding to get the parents' permission to have the kids stay with us in LA until we could file in Los Angeles for emergency guardianship. Mm-hmm, I see. Yeah. And I mean, we lived with that terror every single day. I mean, there were three months when we didn't have any legal rights at all. And at any point, their biological parents could have showed up and said, never mind, give them back, and we would have lost them. It was like building the plane while flying it. It's like we're trying to parent these deeply traumatized kids while also defending our right to parent them at the same time. It was harrowing. It was harrowing. Riley was three at the time, um, and he was completely nonverbal. So he didn't even have the ability to say no to anything. He was nonverbal when he came to you, or did he become nonverbal? No, he was nonverbal when he came to us. So he didn't know colors. He didn't know songs. He didn't know animal sounds. And if I said to him, Riley, honey, have you seen Toy Story? Do you want to watch Toy Story? He would just say yes. Yes if I, if you said riley do you want broccoli he would just nod his head yes so he had no ability to say no to anything
4: <laughs>
2: and eventually i had to like create other ways that felt safe for him to say no he didn't want to do something so we ended up creating like a thumbs up thumbs middle thumbs down code with him because he didn't feel safe enough to say the word no or to in any way express that he didn't like something because the penalty had been so harsh for him in the past if he had tried to say, no, I don't want to do that or no, I don't want to go there. Um, and so did you did you have to get Riley into school? Well, oh man, <laughs> um, if you don't have any legal rights to a kid, um, you can't put them in school. You can't take them to a doctor. You can't put them in preschool. You can't do almost anything with them. Um, and this is actually part of where, like, being a gay parent makes it even harder. Because if we were a straight couple, then we could just show up at a school and enroll them. And no one would ever say, well, prove that this kid is your kid. But because we're gay parents, you automatically know, like, oh, these are not your biological kids. Show us the paperwork. Um, So I had to take a leave of absence from work and stay home with them. Um, And then we found a very good friend of ours who'd actually been a nanny uh, who was between jobs. And so we were able to pay her to be their nanny while we went through this legal process.
4: Tristan says the court battle was incredibly difficult. He says he had some sympathy for John's sister. She was 15 when she had her first child, 18 when she had her second Her boyfriend, who was also Haley, the baby's biological father, beat both her and the kids. He yelled at them, called them names. At the same time, John's sister had the opportunity to leave her abusive home, and she never did. And Tristan says she was neglectful, didn't change the baby's diaper, didn't show up for some of the court dates. The sister's boyfriend wound up going to prison for burglary and car theft, and after a few months in court, Tristan and John won emergency guardianship of the kids, which meant they could take the kids to the doctor. They could enroll Haley in daycare and Riley in preschool. He, he's seven now? Yeah, he's seven. Does he communicate like an average seven-year-old now? Oh, yes.
2: <laughs> Some would <laughs> say too much. <laughs>
4: <laughs> how, did, how did he transition to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a, a long slog. It was a long slog. Um, So it was about a year of, he would sit with his cars, we got him cars, and he would spend hours lining the cars up into these perfect rows on the floor. Just car after car after car after car. And then if they got knocked over, you know, you have to remember, we also had, you know, Haley who was one, who was like learning how to walk, you know, and like pound around and mess things up. So, and then he would just have a, He would have like hours long meltdowns where he would just sit and cry. And so we would just hold him, you know, we would just attend to him and we would just hold him and we would be, you know, I have a friend who's a parenting coach and and she would say, you just have to be present with him through his disappointment or through his pain. Um, And so that's what I did. That's what we both did. how did you present
4: it to them? Did did you, or I guess Haley was too young, but how did you present it to Riley? Did you say, like, you're with us
2: now? Well, no. You know, we didn't want to promise. We didn't know if it was for today. We didn't know if it was for the week. We didn't know if it was forever. I mean, and that was incredibly difficult, too, because you so much want to say, buddy, you're safe now. And quite frankly, I didn't know if he was. I couldn't promise him that we were his parents. I could only promise that he's safe now. He's safe for today. But I would just, you know, I would just hold him and say, I know, sweetheart, and and you're safe right now. And as he started to be able to talk, you know, as we went from squirming away after one page of a book, and it was like, okay, so Dr. Seuss isn't going to work. That's too advanced for him. We would go back to the, like, baby books with the, like, uh, fur on them, you know, where it's like pet the sheep, furry sheep. Can you say furry sheep? So, like, way back to baby books, like you would with a one-year-old. And so they did it together, you know, him and his sister, where it was like, let's pretend to be a sheep. And
4: I guess, like, imagine it must have been so, um, like, exciting when, when he was finally coming around oh, and man. starting to exhibit some more normal behaviors.
2: It, oh, my God. Actually, so I remember that first time that we saw that light. And my foster sister actually also lives in LA. She has a son who's very close in age to Riley, and he had a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. And it was a couple months after the kids came to live with us, and we went to stupid Chuck E. Cheese, which, you know, as a parent, I'm like, kill me. I do not want to go to Chuck E. Cheese. But that's where the party was. And, like, Chuck E. Cheese came out and did the little show and was giving kids high fives, and Riley was ecstatic about Chuck E. Cheese, and so he like, was sitting there and he like put his hand up and was like waving his hand around, like, pick me, pick me, and that was the first time we'd seen him like assert his identity. It was the first time we'd seen him be like, I deserve to be chosen, I deserve to be chosen, I want to be chosen pick me.
4: Coming up, Tristan transitions again, this time from uncle to daddy. Don't go away.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Longest Shortest Time is brought to you by teencounseling.com. Teencounseling.com connects your 13 to 19 year old with a licensed professional counselor right where they spend most of their time on their smartphones. The process starts by completing a short questionnaire to help them understand your relationship with your teen and their specific needs. You'll then be matched with a skilled therapist in teencounseling.com's network of specialists who will be available to start communicating within 24 hours. You'll have the opportunity to review their credentials and directly communicate with the counselor to make sure it's a good fit. Then, once you approve, the counselor and your teen will begin communicating directly. Teen Counseling is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so it's easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's also more affordable than traditional counseling and financial aids available. So visit teencounseling.com longshort.
0: At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain or that you won't get a sunburn or that your family won't endearingly call you lobster mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide.
3: and help your teen take charge of their mental health with help from an experienced professional. Listeners to The Longest Shortest Time can get 10% off their first month at teencounseling.com slash longshort.
4: (laughs) We're back. A year and a half after taking in Riley and Haley, Tristan and John became the kids' permanent legal guardians. Tristan likes to call himself and John accidental gay parents— not something that happens much. You know, usually when a gay couple decides to start a family, they have to answer a huge question. How? Figuring out the how takes time and research and money and often medical procedures. For Tristan and John, the how was answered after a single phone call. But it is not lost on Tristan that their becoming parents was at the expense of John's sister becoming not a
2: parent. You know, we wanted to become parents by choice. You know, we wanted to pre- prepare and and you know, like get ourselves ready, get our lives ready and be a parent to someone where everyone felt great about it, not where one person had to experience that trauma of losing her kids. We don't take that lightly.
4: John's sister vacillated. Sometimes she said the kids should live with him and Tristan, sometimes she wanted them back. It was hard on everybody. In the end, John's sister agreed to let him and Tristan begin the adoption process. In the meantime, Tristan and John have gotten married. On their wedding day, Tristan, John, Riley, and Haley all wore white outfits with sparkly silver sneakers. And um, now do the kids call you
2: dad? Yeah. Technically, I'm daddy and John is dada. They called us uncles for a long time. Um, and and that was really tough you know i really had to learn throughout this process that what was important to me matters so little when it comes to parenting um that it really should be what's what's important to them and for me to not put like i wanted to be a dad so bad i've always wanted to be a dad and i feel like we fought so hard for these kids to be our kids I mean, all of our savings we lost in the process, you know, all of those hours of sleep, you know, a lot of the intimacy that we were able to experience pre-kids, you know, really took a backseat for a long time. Um, So I kind of felt like, you know, come on, kids, like I've earned this, you know, I've earned the right to be called dad, but it wouldn't have been right to force that on them. You know, we really had to let them sort of come to it on their own and have it naturally be an evolution. And so we were un- uncle uncle daddy, that was the, what they called us for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um and that was really sad for me. You know, I just wanted to be I just wanted to be dad. Do you remember
4: um the thing that made you really feel like a dad, like
2: a real dad? Oh yeah. I was playing with Haley. She must have been, I don't know, it was just a couple months in. And we were playing, and I was holding, I picked her up, and she threw up all over me. I mean, like disgusting projectile. Oh my God. And when I picked her up, I smushed her diaper, and then her disgusting baby poop was like all over my shirt, all over (laughs) her. And like, I like literally, like, I didn't even have, I didn't even think to be grossed out. I literally was like, well, now there's like vomit and poop all over us. I like stripped us all down, hopped into the shower with her, cleaned her off. And like, as I was cleaning her off, I was like, oh, I'm a, I'm a dad. And so, like, I have a very, very, very clear memory of us being in the shower and her, like, you know, giggling and me laughing too, you know, because it's so gross Mm -hmm. that it cycles back around from being gross to being funny. I don't know. It was just like this wonderful, disgusting, funny moment. Um, And when I realized that all of those parental instincts had kicked in, And also right after that, I had a moment of real rage because I remembered, you know, I was a political organizer working on gay issues for a long time. And I remembered all of those people that I'd talked to on their doorsteps who didn't think that gay people should or could be parents. And I had that moment where I just was so, I was so angry because here I am cleaning up pee and poop and puke you know Riley got croup and I had to take him to the hospital and I thought he was gonna die and I held his hand in the hospital you know and like they would have night terrors and they would just wake up screaming because they'd been abused so badly I just I'd fought tooth and nail I'd given up almost everything in my life to be able to be a dad to these kids who really really needed someone to step up and stand up for them you know and here there are all of these people out in the world who think that I shouldn't be able to do that and that I can't do it and that we're not a real family. How dare they? And especially me being trans, it's like there are so many people in the world who don't think that I should exist. And I feel so proud of what we've done and what we've created and this incredible family that we've built.
4: It sounds like you haven't had a moment of... of being like, oh, what did I commit myself
2: to? (laughs) Is that right? Oh, I like don't at all want to make it sound like I've been like a steadfast believer in my own parenting abilities at all. I would say about two weeks in, I had a really bad day with the kids where I ended up yelling. And that night I was just like, I don't think that I can do this. I'm not good at parenting. I thought I'd be a good parent. I'm not good. Like, is it too late to send them back? And John was like, yes, asshole, it's too late. I told you how hard this was going to be. You said that you you could do it. We are going to do this. So, oh, there are still times when I look back on my day and I'm so embarrassed at what a terrible parent I was. I don't know why I thought I could do this. Uh, no, I don't ever want to make it sound like I didn't doubt it.
4: Um, you had foster kids uh, growing up in your family. Um, h- how did that play into your ideas of what being a parent meant?
2: My mom is just, she's not uh, a person who's particularly driven by emotions. Um, she's very matter-of-fact, and she was v- very matter-of-fact about parenting and being a mother as well. You know, she said she didn't feel any more of a connection to us because she gave birth to us than she would have if she'd bought us at the store. Um, So I was really raised to believe that biology does not make a family. Um, And I think that's a real privilege. And having this sort of constellation of other kids in my life that my parents took care of and supported in a variety of ways. It just, I think, set me up to be ready um, for when kids needed me. So you said in your
4: email that um, you've recently become interested in having children biologically. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I guess there's a lot of stuff to unpack there. <laughs> First, um, is, are you capable of that physically?
2: Yeah, I mean if I went off of testosterone within three to six months, my body would become able to, to carry a baby. And I started to think, you know, what would that be like? And maybe that's something that I want to do. And as part of that process, I don't ever feel like I've wanted to negate or erase the fact that I was born female. I am trans um, sort of on the spectrum of, dysphoria or discomfort with your body. Um, I'm on the like least uncomfortable side of that spectrum. So I've always felt really comfortable, uh, in, you know, having a female body that's never bothered me at all. Um, so to me, I'm like, I am a man, I have a female body. Um, and you know, I'm able to have a baby and to create life, you know, maybe that would be An experience that I would really love. Um, And, you know, I look at John too and it's like, I want to know what his baby would look like, what it would look like, what what she would be like, that we make together.
4: I wonder if you imagine, like, what that would actually be like, how it would play out. Like, the complications of of what it would be like to be... um, presenting as a man with a pregnant body.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean first and foremost, I don't believe that I would encounter any situations that would compromise my safety. Um that's the would be my primary concern. Other than that, like I don't really care. You know what I mean? Like if I'm out in public and people are like, does that dude have a tumor? Like Why is he skinny, but super fat in the tummy? Like, is that a pregnant man? You know, I just don't, I don't care. (laughs) And I spent years deeply invested in other people. You know, if someone, oh man, like before I transitioned, if I would go out to the store and someone would call me ma'am, I mean, that would, it would just devastate me. It would devastate me. Sometimes I'd have to go home. Like I couldn't even have a rest of the day. You know, I spent so much time in that place and I just am, I'm just not gonna go back there. You know, what other people, it's like RuPaul says, what other people think of me is none of my business. I all, I mean, I think there is also something deeply radical about being a trans person and having a baby. I don't know if you know this, but in a lot of countries, um, a lot of European countries where they support trans people, you actually have to become sterile in order to transition. Um, it's it's actually like a bar that you have to, it's a hurdle you have to jump over in order to prove to the government that you're really trans. So it is a deeply revolutionary act to say, I'm going to enter into the world of parenthood in this way. Have you taken
4: any steps to... Uh to to start uh having a child biologically
2: no um john feels deeply conflicted um about it so we're still in the process of talking it through and really figuring out is this something we want to do what's our timing for it all of that um yeah he's not sure if it's something that he wants to do so we're still we're still having conversations i guess
4: And where are you at with um, the kids, with Haley and Riley? What's everyone up to, and how's the family doing?
2: Yeah. um, I mean, July 6th, we have our adoption hearing, Um, so we're in the absolute final stages, which is really, really wonderful. That's going to be so good. Um, You know, Riley, uh, certainly all of the emotional issues that he had are almost completely gone, Um, He's just like a regular seven-year-old. You know, he has some struggles that we're not sure how much is biological, how much is because he had a rough start, Um, but, you know, we're able to support him to get those needs met. Um, Haley is, you know, she's the light of my life. You know, some girl on the playground was like, oh, is your mom dead? Is that why you have two dads? And Haley was like, no, I have two dads because I'm special.
4: Tristan and John had their adoption hearing last summer. Tune in next week to hear audio from that, plus John's perspective on the story. And coming up in our next season, we've got a follow-up with these guys on the next chapter in their lives. It is just as touching as the first two episodes, so make sure you're subscribed to The Longest Shortest Time. There are not enough stories about non traditional families out in the world or safe places to talk about them in a complicated way. So please use our website as a place to talk about your non traditional family. Go to longestshortesttime.com and leave your comment on this episode. That's episode 60. This podcast is produced by me, Hilary Frank, and Abigail Keel. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and the Reverend John DeLore. Our theme music is by The Batteries Duo. We get editorial support from Anne-Marie Baldonado and Antonia Akitunde. This episode was produced in partnership with WNYC. I had production support over there from Joanna Solitaroff and Bill Moss. Special thanks to John Sepulvido, who recorded Tristan's side of the conversation. You know, Tristan from today's episode was a regular old listener to our show, Just Like You. We found his story because he sent it to us through our website. If you want to be like Tristan and tell your story on the show, just pitch us. You can talk about your parents. You can talk about your kids. Most of all, we want to hear something that you think we've never heard before. So go to LongestShortestTime.com and submit your story.
1: What is The Mysterious Secrets of Uncle Bertie's Botanarium? The spaghettiarium Nocturnum. The night spaghetti. It looks like spaghetti. Yes, but specifically when you eat it at night. Why none other than the biggest, boldest Howl original show yet. I've seen a crab with seven legs. Starring Jermaine Clement in a truly original fantasy adventure. Oh, what's that awful smell, Salinter? That's the sea air, sir. Mmm. <laughs> Experience the mysterious secrets of Uncle Bertie's Botanarium today, only on Howl. Stand up. You
3: sing Earwolf? Yeah. Earwolf!
1: This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit earwolf.com. <laughs> I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find ten. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? donated this <gasps> guitar. I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff.
4: Fonzie's jacket worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days.
1: There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
0: At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain or that you won't get a sunburn